0: Bibles, if you would, to uh, Galatians, Galatians uh, chapter two. Uh, George read for us Acts 15 this morning, and um, there are varying opinions of which trip Paul took to Jerusalem that Galatians two is is referring to. But um, I happen to be of the opinion that it is uh, it is Acts 15 and the meeting of uh, the apostle and and. Apostle Paul and Barnabas with the apostles in Jerusalem. And so that kind of gives us the background of what we're going to talk about today. But have you ever um, been in a conversation where you're you're either so excited that you can't get the words out fast enough of what you want to say? And one thought leads to another, and sometimes there if you were Writing it you would write it a different way, but the emotion of the moment. It just comes out. It comes out that way Uh, Sometimes it it happens when we're just excited about something we want to share with a friend Sometimes it comes when we're uh, in conflict with someone sometimes it comes as 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 parents with their children I remember my dad one time or probably several times um, We were going someplace in the car and I was in the back seat perhaps with my friends and you know, we were being kids and a little bit loud and perhaps obnoxious uh, to my parents. And, you know, my dad just said, uh, if I have to start this, stop this car, you're going to walk home. And I'm thinking, well, we're about 150 miles away. Really, dad, you're going to put me out of the car? I never challenged my dad on that, uh, just because my dad probably would have put me out <laughs> uh, about that far. But sometimes just the words come. And um, I, I get that feeling when I read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 with Paul. It is a, a bit of a convoluted uh, section of scripture. Um, remember Paul, the Judaizers have, have claimed that he's an illegitimate apostle. He's preaching an illegitimate gospel. Um, He's proven the apostleship part in, in chapter 1, and now he's about to prove the part about his gospel, not being illegitimate. Um, but in this section, there are at least, there are three or four parentheses where Paul is just, uh, he's got so much evidence to prove his point that he's pouring it out. And and we see that, and we we can kind of feel the emotion in that, and let, let me read through uh, Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 for so that the section we'll be looking at this morning. So then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, first parentheses, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, now back to Titus, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield even in submission even for a moment, so that the God, truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they make what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There's a lot of words. There's a lot of detail in what Paul is saying. The problem he has is the Judaizers are teaching a false gospel, which he says in chapter 1 is no gospel. If it's not the true gospel, it's no gospel at all. Paul's gospel, they're saying, was was not sufficient. He's teaching a a gospel light, um, an easy believism. A gospel that's nothing but believing in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection on the cross and nothing else. So they discredited Paul and they discredit his teaching. And the first two chapters of Galatians are his defense, his defense on, on those two things. And Paul's point is, is that his gospel is, is not from man. It is direct revelation from God. And we saw that, we saw that in chapter 1. He said in verse, uh, verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This was something that was independent from any of these apostles for Paul. And then in chapter 2 after he after he proves his independence from from the from the apostles in Jerusalem, he says I was called by God on the road to Damascus as an apostle to the Gentiles. In chapter 1, he comes to chapter 2. So does that mean that there's a dissension among Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem? And that's what chapter 2 is about. So when we're reading chapter 2, we need to also keep in mind what he said in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, if you recall that. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached, was, was, um, preached by me was not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. This is, his, this is what he wants to do. He wants to prove that, and he does it in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And his his point is very clear, and it's in verses 6, and it's in verse 9. In verse 6, he says, Those who seem influential, what they were, makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. ...to the gospel that I preached. And, who, and so he's, he's declaring his independence. But in verse 9 he says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave them the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. There is, a, there is a, an idea that he's creating a sense of independence while at the same time creating a sense of Unity. That his gospel is independent from the apostles, but at the same time, his gospel is the same as the apostles. And that is what he is coming to, to the conclusion of his defense. And he is, he is so uh, full of evidence that this is true, that he just pours this all out in, in verses 1 through 10. So as we look through verses 1 through 10, what I want us to see today and we'll, we'll describe it this way, is that the perseverance uh, of the truth of the gospel requires us or requires leadership or it requires people of the church to stand united in courageous obedience to God. That is the, the thesis of what Paul is wanting to say. And he says that in three Parts in verses one through one and two, he kind of sets the stage. He's going to describe how he got to Jerusalem, and we're going to see that Paul's Paul's um, entire uh, entire uh, story here has to do with obedience to a revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he's going to say in verses three through five, he's going to kind of. Um, Take a, a rabbit trail in a way, and he's going to expose the Judaizers. And in that, we're going to see Paul's courage in per, in preserving the truth of the gospel and confronting the Judaizers. And then he's going to come in verses six through ten, which is one one sentence real in 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 Greek for Paul. It's one sentence, and he's going to talk about his unity with the apostles in Jerusalem. That we're going to see a united stand for the truth of the gospel. So there's obedience and there's courage that results in, in unity. So let's look at those. First of all, verses 1 and 2. Obedience for, of Paul in the preservation of the truth of the gospel. Two verses that, that set the stage for us, and he begins this way. Then after 14 years, this is a, this is a time marker for Paul. He's given us a, a chronology of, of what happened to him in the early years and, and actually in, in over a decade of his life with Christ. He said in verse 18 of chapter 1, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem, visit with Cephas, who was Peter, for 15 days. So we said that after three years from his conversion was the first time he had a conversation with Peter. And now he's going on and say, then after 14 years, I went back up to Jerusalem. He's given us a, a context here, of, and it's really proof of what he was proving in chapter one, that I was there. I had a short conversation after three years, and then another 14 years. Some people say it's actually a total of 14 years after his conversion. But it, if you just read it, it reads it could it could be either. It it kind of reads that after three years I saw Peter for 15 days, and then after 14 more years. However, you take that, either way, the point is. It was a long time. It was a long time before I had a conversation with any of the apostles about the truth of the gospel. This is more proof of Paul uh, that the apostles did not teach Paul the gospel, that his gospel came from revelation. He he has already proclaimed the gospel for possibly 17 years before he has a conversation with, with the apostles. He says, I went up I went up to Jerusalem. Now, this really doesn't have anything to do with the main point of, of what he's saying, but this phrase always confused me when I was a kid, uh, because I would read things like this, and nobody ever helped me understand this. It, it, everywhere you go, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going up. And, you know, Paul's way in the north, and, and when I think about that, he's going down to Jerusalem. But in scripture, it's always going up. And, and I thought, why is that? Well, probably a couple of reasons. Because it's, it's elevated higher than other areas uh, of that part of the world. It's 2,500 feet above sea level. And if you go 20 to 30 miles west, you're at the Mediterranean Sea. You're at sea level. If you go 20 to 30 miles east, southeast, you're at the lowest place on the planet of the earth, the Dead Sea. So you're, you're going up. But I think there's... Also another reason, because the Bible calls Jerusalem the city of God. It calls Jerusalem the, the joyful city. It calls Jerusalem the desired one. It's the location of the temple, the, the physical manifestation of God. And Psalm 34 says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? There's a spiritual aspect of Jerusalem as well, because it's the place of God. And so if you read Uh, In Scripture, if they go to Jerusalem, it's always going up. The Psalms of Ascent, all of the Psalms of Ascent are about going to Jerusalem. That's just uh, for future Bible reading, in case somebody is not uh, explaining that as they did not to me. and always bothered me. I've got that off my chest now. (laughs) Okay, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem uh, with Barnabas. First time he mentions anyone associated with him. Why? Well, because chapter 1 he's proving independence. In chapter 2, he's, he's proving unity. Um, Barnabas was especially respected by everyone. This is a strategic person to have with you. You might remember in, in Acts, and, and we, re- we rarely uh, think of, of Barnabas in, in this uh, portion of Scripture, but in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we're coming to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And remember, uh, people were selling their things and giving to the apostles, and Ananias and Sapphira, it it wasn't required, but they did it, but they lied about what they did, and and that was a sin, and it didn't work out well for them. But just before that, in chapter 4, verse 36, is thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. His name was Joseph. The, the apostles called him Barnabas, why? Because he was, a, he was an encourager. He was somebody you wanted to be around. He was also a Levite. He was a good, the priestly line. He was a, a native of Cyprus, he wasn't local. So Paul is bringing with him someone everyone knows who was with the apostles, who was a good apostle, little A, in the early church who gave money, who sold his property, gave money. We don't, we don't usually remember Barnabas was there at the beginning. But he he was there at the very beginning. He also helped Paul. You, you might remember in, in um, Acts chapter chapter 9 when Paul was, was converted. There are two words that are, are very important words in chapter 27. Nobody wanted to talk, nobody wanted to talk to Paul. He had been persecuting the church. He had been causing uh, believers to be murdered. He came to Christ. Christ came to him. Christ saved him. In verse 27, two words, but Barnabas, but Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. If Barnabas had not done that, Paul would not have met those apostles. But Barnabas, he had been with Paul from the beginning. Paul left for three years and Barnabas remembered him. Barnabas was, was planting a church in, in Antioch and he goes and he gets Paul. And he brings Paul to Antioch and they, they plant the church in Antioch and they, they teach and the church in Antioch in chapter 13 of Acts. It says the Holy Spirit, the elders were gathering together and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul. And they did that and they went... In, in Acts 13 and 14, on the first missionary journey, they plant all the Galatian churches together. And so Paul brings Barnabas, very strategic person to have with you. He also brings, we're told, Titus along with him. Barnabas is inter- instrumental because of his reputation and, and, and uh, his relationship with Paul. Titus is a strategic choice. Why? Because he's not Jewish. He is Greek. He's going to be exhibit A when we get down to the next section. So these two guys come along with him. But what we want to see in these first two verses is Paul says, I went up because of revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. I went up because of revelation. That's a reason Paul went up to Jerusalem we're not told what that revelation looked like we're not told was that a direct revelation from God to Paul was that uh, through a prophet which there were prophets in the church at that time like Agabus uh, in in uh, Antioch or was it simply that the the uh, elders of Antioch got together and and they were in agreement that the spirit of the Lord was was confirming in their hearts that Paul should go to Jerusalem. We're not told about that, but either way, Paul was obedient. He did not go because he doubted the gospel that he preached. He had received that by direct revelation. He did not go to get the approval of the apostles He wanted their confirmation, but he didn't go for their approval. He wasn't summoned by the apostles. He goes to share his understanding of the gospel in hope that they would confirm his understanding of the gospel. He was seeking unity to prove that his gospel is, as he says, direct revelation from God. And so he goes there in obedience to set this before them. And he says, though privately before some who seemed influential. Um, let me just ad- address that very uh, briefly. Some who seemed influential is here four times. In verse uh, 6, it's, it says, And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. And then um, it, again in verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, were there. And then in verse, I, I miss one here, those who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. Four times, he says, those who seemed to be influential. And it's almost like he's being sarcastic uh, about the apostles. That those were the ones who seemed to be influential. But remember... We're on a phone call and we're, we're hearing only part of what is, say, is said on the phone. And Paul is saying, those who seem to be influential, we're not hearing what the Judaizers have said. It is possible that they had said, Paul is not one of the original apostles. Paul is not as important. Paul does not have the authority of the apostles. And perhaps they said, there are those in Jerusalem who have influence. They are the ones we need to listen to. And perhaps Paul is turning their words back on them, not in a disrespectful way, simply letting the Galatians know that the truth is from God. And now even those who are considered important have to receive their truth from God. It is a truth that is received from God. So no matter what you think about the apostles. If I can prove that this is by direct revelation and they confirm and and we are in agreement, uh, it doesn't matter what those who seem influential say because God God shows no partiality. And so he goes to these who seemed influential and he presents the gospel before them to make sure he says that I have not run my race in vain. Uh, Not that he thought that he had preached the wrong gospel, um, not that the Galatians who had received the gospel were, were not saved, uh, but he goes to make sure that his preaching results in one body of Christ. Because Paul knows if the Judaizers are right and the Jerusalem apostles require circumcision, that there's going to be two denominations. There's going to be a denomination of of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And there's going to be a denomination of grace adding Jewishness. Grace adding circumcision. Grace adding rituals. Grace plus works. So what do we learn from just those verses. Well, I think obedience to revelation. Paul was, Paul was saved by revelation. Paul was taught by revelation. Paul lived by revelation. He was obedient to God in all revelation. His life was a picture of what it meant to be rescued from the present evil age, and it was all by revelation. The cross was revealed to him, and, and the cross changed everything for Paul. Paul's life was defined by the cross. At least he doesn't want to leave. <laughs> you know, we have the full revelation of God, don't we? We, too, are saved through revelation. We, too, are taught through the revelation of God. We, too, live according to the revelation of God. We, too, are to be obedient to the revelation of God in all aspects of Of our life and when we understand that we care deeply about the gospel we care when the gospel is being distorted and we will we will defend the gospel now there are a lot of times when we uh, meet together we come we have a member meeting in two weeks there will be there will be things that uh, are not distortions of the gospel that that we may not all agree with. And, and I think we would not condone Paul's approach in lesser things, uh, Paul's approach of calling down curses on those who don't agree with him. We don't want to do that. Uh, but there are conflicts, and, and I think we, there, it, when conflicts happen, we need, to, we need to handle them up front, and we need to do it correctly. There are people, we need to realize who we are, either, either when conflict happens, you're a fighter or you're a flighter. Uh, you either, you either uh, dive in because you love conflict or you run because you hate conflict. I am the flighter. I, I'm not a conflict person. But you know, the, the love of conflict or the fear of conflict, neither one of those is pleasing to God. And so how do we handle that conflict? Well, uh, Paul says in Galatians Galatians 5 verse 24 and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we crucify the flesh with, our, with its passions and desires, we handle conflict in, in a godly way. When we live by revelation, when we obey revelation, when we walk in the Spirit, God gives us the ability to handle conflict. And I praise God that that, um, that is true of Providence Church because because when, when conflict is handled wrongly, when it's handled uh, either with delight or when, it's, when it is avoided, neither one of those brings true peace. Secondly, courage of Paul for the preservation of the gospel, verses uh, three, 3 through 5. He begins by saying, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. It's almost like I can't hold back the evidence anymore. I've got to say this. Titus was not forced to be circumcised, proof of the gospel. Paul jumps right into the conclusion. Paul calls Titus, in in Titus, my true son of the common faith. Not common ethnicity, but of the common faith. Titus was the the test case. Um, how How would they accept an uncircumcised Gentile? This is really where the rubber meets road. You know, it's one thing to have a theory. It's another to, to be, have to handle it in person. And the apostles affirm Paul's gospel through Titus. In verse 4 he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, uh, you know, that, that's actually a, a sentence that Paul starts and never finishes in Greek. It, it really just says, False brothers secretly brought in. Um, The English translations try to make sense of it and say, the ESV says, yet because of false brothers uh, secretly brought in. The NIV, if you have an NIV, it'll say, this matter arose because of false brothers. It's actually a, a partial sentence that he never completes. These guys are so much on Paul's mind, this is so much of a concern that he he digresses in these verses to expose them. Who are they? Well, he never identifies them specifically, but he calls them false brothers. That is a, that is a damning statement. That is, they are unbelievers. He makes it clear who they are. They're men in the church who are false brothers, who demand circumcision. And you know what? They are not commended by the Apostles. It is a bit frightening that you know, any requirement added to faith destroys the gospel. It, it ends the gospel. Uh, it was brought to a head at the cross, the cross spoke to the gospel, the cross defines the gospel, and any work added to that destroys the work of the cross. And Paul says, we did not give in. Not give in means there there was pressure to give in. And he says, "We we didn't submit even for a moment. We did not submit to these false brothers. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. False brothers were not trusting the gospel because they were adding works to the gospel. This was not simply a theology debate. This was not, are you a premillennial or uh, amillennial or postmillennial or panmillennial and everything's going to pan out uh, in the end. It's not that. This is a question about a false gospel. Faith for all Gentiles would be in jeopardy if this is not settled. It didn't matter what gender you are, what ethnicity, what nationality, whatever you want to call it, if this is not settled, that's destroyed. In verse 5, we did not submit for a moment. We didn't give in to any of the, the pressure. Why? Because we needed to persevere the truth of the gospel for you. That is the heart of a true apostle. That is the heart of a pastor that is a legacy any pastor should want to have uh in his church that when his time is done at the church everything he did preserved the truth of the gospel and the gospel remains sure in the church it doesn't matter what size the church is it doesn't matter how many books he's written or, or not written what matters is the truth of the gospel is preserved in the church paul preserved the truth of the gospel he was a true pastor he had the heart of a pastor. What did that lead to? Well, let's look at number three. The truth of the gospel and the unity of the church. Paul's main point, he wants to make his main, main point, he states it negatively, as we mentioned in, in, in verse 6, he said, they added nothing to me. These guys in Jerusalem, apostles, great men of God, But they added nothing to me. Why? Because God revealed this to me. And then he states it positively in verse 9. They extended to him the right hand of fellowship. Verse 6, he goes back and he says, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. They contributed nothing to the gospel that Paul preached. This is not a lack of respect. As we said, it, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is that you're faithful to the truth. That's why in, in chapter 1, verse 8, he called down a curse on those who preach a different gospel. It's not about people. You know, we have, uh, in the history of the church, we have um, created a dichotomy between um, lay people and pastors. And I think it's a a false dichotomy because I think a pastor is a sinner who is uh, attempting to point other sinners to Christ through the preaching of the truth of the gospel. And so we could say Paul saved the day. Or did he? Well, look at verse 7 Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And then verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. Verse 7, they recognized Paul was to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised. Peter was to preach the gospel to the circumcised. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. Uh, you know, we talk about that uh, when, we, when we bring people in the church. It, they they recognized the ministry of grace that was given to Paul. Paul was mainly to go to the Gentiles. Peter was mainly to go to the Jews, not preaching two separate Gospels, but preaching in, in different contexts, preaching in terms that the audience would understand. And they gave him the right hand of fellowship. We should say, we could say that, that this gives Paul the victory. It has been decided. He, had, he must have had great joy when this happened. He's free to preach the Gospel uh, with the unity of the Apostles. This sign is a right hand of fellowship we talk about. it's really a, a sign of affirmation, a, a sign of, um, a sign of partnership, a sign of, of fellowship. And it was given to Paul, not to the Judaizers. So when we, when we um, receive people into membership, we're doing, we're doing something similar. We're affirming a common gospel, we're affirming a common Partnership, we're affirming a fellowship. You are my brother, you are my sister. But why did they recognize this in Paul, and what did they recognize? Well, verse 8. Look at verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Paul's not the hero of this story. God preserves the gospel. God worked through Peter. God worked through Paul. God thought up this gospel. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has has created. This is God's gospel, this is God's thought. God chose Paul. God saved Paul. God commissioned Paul. God saved sinners through Paul's preaching. God preserves the gospel. How did the apostles know? Because they recognized that God had worked through his life. They recognized the work of God in Paul just as they did in Peter. They are equals, preaching the same gospel in different places. What's that mean for us? Well, if God planned the gospel before the world began, and if God sent his son to die, and God raised him from the dead, the gospel, if God called Peter to preach and to defend the gospel, Will he not also graciously bestow his grace on us? This is God's gospel. If he preserved the truth of the gospel for people who need it, are we not also to preserve the gospel for people who need it? Are we not also to proclaim the gospel for people who need it? Paul had another young son in the faith, Timothy, And in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, Paul writes these words. The gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. If you commit your life to Jesus Christ through the gospel, God will use you to preserve the gospel. He'll use you to proclaim the gospel, just as he did with Paul, in unity with like-minded brothers and sisters, with, with whom we share the right hand of fellowship. It's the church. God has called us to defend the gospel. He's called us to proclaim the gospel. Their solution was that Paul and Barnabas uh, will go to the Gentiles. Peter and and, um, the apostles, they'll go to the Jews. And there was only one stipulation, remember the poor, the very thing that Paul says he wanted to do. Paul closes this section with that request, remember the poor. It was important during that time, it's been important since uh, the beginning of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 11, talked about taking care of the poor. But being a Christian in Jerusalem was not an easy thing. Persecution by the Romans, persecution by the Jews. It, there were several times when, when uh, gifts were brought to the poor in Jerusalem. It was a priority to take care of the poor. But I think it was a natural thing to take care of the poor as well. You see, when we enjoy the presence of God and, and community, as Paul and, and the apostles did, and we, pra- we, we begin to do things, and one of those things we begin to do is to practice generosity and to practice hospitality for those um, who don't have it. The presence of God is the reason Paul was interested in taking care of the poor. Because Paul defended the gospel, he proclaimed the gospel, his his, his life was a picture of the transformation power of the gospel. The gospel is worth fighting for. The gospel transforms lives. It is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does Paul defend the gospel with such zeal? There's a man who lived in the early 1900s. His name was A.W. Pink. He was a a pastor during during those times, did a lot of writing, but never really influential during the time of his life. It wasn't until after he died that his writings became so uh, popular among uh, pastors, and uh, he ended up discipling many pastors after his death. But he wrote this, He says, as Christ has a gospel, Satan has a gospel too. The latter being a clever counterfeit of the former. So closely does the gospel of Satan resemble that which it parades. Multitudes of unsaved are deceived by it. That is the reason we must defend the gospel. That is the reason we must proclaim the gospel. And may God allow us, Providence Church, to be defenders and proclaimers of his gospel.